Dotnet Rocks episode 789 with guest Andrew Arnott, recorded live Thursday, July 5th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and uh, what's up, my friend? Summertime, my friend. Ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Uh, no, I've been waiting for the summertime for a while. Getting ready for a sale fest here, OpSale. Nice. You know, the, there's going to be 900,000 people here in my little town this weekend, and the tall ships are coming. It's going to be great. Yeah, you guys take sailing seriously. And doesn't the eagle live around you? Well, yeah, right, right, uh, literally a mile away from the studio. One of the last four-masted clippers left in the world, owned by the U.S. Coast Guard, and I don't know why I know that. Well, it's a it's a very famous ship. It's, it is. They use it for training and sea trials and stuff. And my friend Dermot Hannafin, who owns the the pub downstairs, got an opportunity to sail with it to Waterford, wow. Ireland. But uh, he was like, "Yeah, been there, done that, sailed enough. It's I'm a boat. staying on. Why would I sail the Atlantic?" Again, <laughs> when I don't have to, he says, after two hours, he goes, it was great. After two hours, I'll be bored out of me flipping mine. <laughs> Let me off of here, you people. All right, let's uh, get started with Better Know Framework. Hit me. All right, what do you got? Well, um, I can't remember if we've covered this before, but I just thought it was very cool. And it's mm-hmm. something that I don't personally do, so it was even more intriguing to me. Which is uh, systemweb.management. Oh. System.web.management has classes and interfaces for managing and monitoring the health of web applications. So if you're serious about monitoring, there's all sorts of great stuff in here. And I went looking, of course, for somebody who's written a blog post or a tutorial, and I found one. Mm. You go to tinyurl.com slash system-web-management. That brings you to a really cool article. Uh, where they talk about how to configure ASP.NET health monitoring and using the built-in classes and providers and events or using your own custom events. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. And, you know, I've been gradually changing my talks over from web scaling talks into more DevOps talks because they're just a pivot on the same subject. And obviously health monitoring is a huge part of that. So this is, you know, good stuff for me. And talk about routing, though. I mean, there are so many points that you can uh, that you can intercept to, to see what's going on there. And, yeah, it takes some work. But, man, you, it's just about anything that you can do. Well, and you, and you need every app is different. You know, the way that you measure health for your app is good, varies. It's just a different thing to think about. Yep. Anyway, good stuff. Glad you yeah. found it. So, who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show 766. And that's the one we did with Rob Connery about Coffee Script, if you will. Oh, yeah. And Eric Swanson sent us a note. He said, why don't I ever hear references to classic ASPJScript when Microsoft developers discuss JavaScript's history? There is even support to debug these old apps in Visual Studio 2010. I also rarely hear people mention the Windows scripting support for JScript. And since it's still supported in XP or even earlier in in server OSs, uh, maybe it's not wildly popular, but they were quietly powerful solutions before .NET and PowerShell and important milestones in JavaScript history for Microsoft devs. Uh, With that in mind, Windows 8 JavaScript enable feels just like another evolution of MSJScript upgraded with the ECMAScript evolutions plus JSharp upgraded with the .NET evolutions. Huh? Um, Yeah, Eric, I think you're twisting yourself up pretty good to try and make that case. I I don't know if I'll I'll go for that. Uh, Interesting idea. I I think people don't talk about classic ASP much because uh, it hurt. (laughs) Hey, ouchies. Now, it's not to say it's not still out there. I just finished an architectural review a couple of weeks ago where big chunk of the apps they're using, ASP. You know, it's one of the it's a, one of those things that just keeps on going. That's true. But, uh, you know, ASP.NET 
was not originally .NET. Scott Guthrie said it himself. They were trying to take the lessons of ASP and carry them forward into a new web development environment, and .NET came in a little later in that context. It became you know, part of .NET, but they were looking at, I think it was originally called ASP2. Right. So, uh, but and JavaScript has gone through major evolutions. And again, I think since Doug Crockford's book, uh, JavaScript, The Good Bits, and we've had Crockford on the show, you know, we've started to distill down what really mattered about JavaScript, and that's what's been worked on. So I think we're a long way away from the, you know, year 2000 JScript. It's evolved. Also, also JScript um, wasn't successful, not just, not because of its languageness, you know, it was, it was really just the, the, the strategic uh, situations around where it evolved. Well, it was more successful than VBScript. But. Yeah, but that's because JavaScript is more successful than VBScript in general. Yeah. So. Well, and JScript eventually got pushed over to ECMA, became part of ECMAScript. And you yeah. know, we've all had good evolutions, and we're just moving forward on the new things. But that's not going to stop me from sending the mug to Eric. So, Eric, thank you for your comment. Uh, I may not agree with all those bits. I know why we're not talking about it. But while I disagree with you, you can listen to it while drinking out of a lovely, gigantic .NET Rocks mug. Enormous. Enormous. I've got mine right here. Me and too. And if you'd like one, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And uh, before we get started here today, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as those that appear on our show. They release 12 to 15 new courses a month and offer a 10-day free trial with 200 minutes uh, of access to their vast library. They have a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything Microsoft, including Windows 8 coverage extensively. Uh, try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Andrew Arnott is a husband, father of two kids, and six years as a developer at Microsoft working on Visual Studio. He enjoys spending his extra time at home writing software to help protect Internet consumer identity. Andrew, welcome to the show. I'm interested in what got you interested in identity. Is this one of those stories that, you know, you got hacked and then you set out to re to, to avenge uh, the wrongdoers? Or, or was it just something you've always been interested in? Uh, it's been... It, I did get hacked. I had $1,400 stolen out of my checking account oh, uh, I knew it. years ago. <laughs> uh, and I don't think it had anything to do with the internet, per se, uh, but it did get me thinking about security a lot more. Uh, I, I went to school studying computer software, obviously, but turned turned my nose up to security thinking I wasn't going to get into that at all. So I, I haven't had the formal education, but I've learned everything just by studying up since then and wishing that I had taken it more at school. But isn't it funny how important those things come when you get uh, violated, basically? You know, you yeah. get hacked and then it's all of a sudden, ah. <laughs> but, you know, right. that's what it takes for developers. Because, right. like I said before, we hate security. Yeah. Well, and I'm learning to love it. It's it's. Uh, I, I look at it and it's my hammer and everything I see is a nail now. So, <laughs> oh, I can fix this with better security. Let's roll back a little bit before we start talking about uh, OAuth, which is great. But uh, let's go back to InfoCard. We had done uh, some stuff on uh, InfoCard here. We've talked to a bunch of people about it. Um, let's dial back a little history and what got us to this point. InfoCard is a fun technology. I When it first came out, I think, what was that? Windows XP? Yeah. 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 Uh, came out as a .NET 3.0 service, I think, and uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. It actually brought the user uh, complexity of, act like, to the user, it's a lot easier now mm -hmm. to log into a website using mm -hmm. InfoCard. It's easier than a password. It's much, much more secure. It actually brought cryptography to the user in a very user-friendly way, I thought. Uh, it was very slow to use, and it wasn't at all uh, promoted to the user, and, and so no websites used it, no users used it. Right. Uh, and I am talking about personal or what they call P cards, by the way, in the on the business side, uh, managed information cards. I I understand are much more popular. Yeah, and the, and it sort of became part of the OS and Vista, wasn't it? Where there was like a place in the control panel where you could yes. add your info cards and all of that. 
Yeah. But nobody used it, so it sort of became irrelevant in the in the uh, consumer model. Right. Yeah. And OpenID? OpenID is you see in an, in an in a totally fair perfect world, I would say that Infocard had the right kind of consumer protection because the user completely controls his own identity. His identity is managed on his own computer com uh, entirely. Nobody can revoke it. Mm -hmm. OpenID, on the other hand, uh, took a, a more practical approach of, hey, you know, we're not in that perfect world yet, mm -hmm. but we can start to train web developers, websites, and most importantly, the consumers who are visiting these websites. We can start teaching them. We can log you in without you giving us a password uh, in a way that was stepwise toward an ultimate goal where maybe info cards may come back or maybe we'll have something even better. Mm. Uh, open ID, instead of owning your own identity completely, you're relying on some, usually some third-party web service out there that you will authenticate to, usually with a password, but not necessarily. And it's a federated uh, then, system, right? Right. Not in the sense that, uh, for example, Windows Live ID back when it was Passport, uh, that was federated, but if it was, if you had a passport account or you wanted to log in with passport, Microsoft was the only possible identity provider. Whereas OpenID has this distributed model so that anybody can be an identity provider. You can even be your own identity provider, but, uh, really if we're going for consumer internet protection, that doesn't help people because my grandma doesn't know how to set up her own identity provider. Hmm. Now has OpenID been used? I mean, I, I, I don't see it in the, you know, in the consumer you know, my, for example, my wife doesn't use it when she signs into Amazon or anything like that. But uh, does has it taken off in the in the enterprise space? It's it's beginning to. Uh, I have had a lot of people asking me lately, "Hey, how do I use OpenID to set up SSO within my intranet or my organization?" So SSO. Uh, you may not see it on Let's just define that. Oh, a single sign-on. So yeah. you log into one website and you automatically get signed into the other websites. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not nearly as crisp as Kerberos, you know, say a Windows domain uh, system. Mm -hmm. But OpenID does let you, if you have disparate systems across different domains or maybe not all of your computers are Windows, then OpenID provides a pretty good solution for achieving SSO. And so now it turns out that the concept is good. Um, and, and I always thought the concept was good of a single sign-on because... And especially for when you're using a password on a site that people care about, you know, like their Facebook account or whatever, because there's less, there's no incentive for them or there is an incentive for them not to give out their credentials to other people. So it sort of keeps them honest. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and now here comes OAuth and, you know, now all of a sudden every website and their brother lets you log in with Facebook. <laughs> right, which is which is a mixed blessing. Again, we're we're getting toward the 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 world where the users don't have that many identities uh, to manage, which is which is a very good thing for the users' protection. On the other mm. hand, we're kind of getting into it maybe a little bit before we're ready. Uh, mm. OAuth two, which is what F Facebook uses, an older version of it, uh, isn't ready for prime time for authenticating users. And so the way Facebook uses it, and more particularly the way most websites that accept logging in as Facebook uses it, mm -hmm. uh, is actually f often insecure. And if you log into a website using your Facebook account, there's a good possibility that you are uh, trusting that website to not misuse that login to log in as you as on somebody else's website and impersonate you. Well, now, wow. Um, so <laughs> when you say insecure, you don't mean just not in an HTTPS connection so that stuff isn't you know, it isn't uh, encrypted, but you're talking about the uh, the website that's that you're logging into with your Facebook credentials or whatever has access to your Facebook credentials, and they could misuse that if they want to. Not not the credentials themselves, and that that is the one of the main points of OAuth is stop having third-party websites ask for your Facebook password, for example, yeah. or stop having Facebook ask for your Gmail password so you can download all your contacts and spam your friends. Uh, OAuth is supposed to separate those two, but the problem with OAuth 2, when it is used for authenticating, which is not what it was designed for, mm. is when I log into your website, let's say .NET, .NET Rocks accepted a Facebook login. Mm. Um, when I log in, you get a code from Facebook that's not my password, 
but it can be used to verify that I did actually log into your website okay. using my Facebook account. And then, but then once you take, yeah, go once you, I get it. Once your code is authenticated, you, the developer, can do anything on the user's behalf. Is that what well, you're saying? Uh, it can. Um, usually, to get that code, I had to consent to give that website permission to do a certain set of limited things. But nothing prevents that website then from taking. Well, there is something that prevents that website, but it's not commonly done. Uh, is from you taking that code now and logging into some other totally unrelated website that also accepts Facebook mm. and replaying that code to them. And then they'll think that you are me, which is it, yeah. the whole thing turned around because OAuth was supposed to solve these types of problems. But when a security protocol is misused, you end up with problems anyway. So I, I so where, where is the incentive not to to do that. I guess the incentive for a website not to do that is hopefully they're accepting these authentication things because they want people to come back and use their website and their service and so you know they're they're a visible point on the on the web. And I think that visibility sort of keeps us honest as well. But uh you could I guess you could see how you know if one of those sites was hacked or if something was put up as a a deliberate scam i guess i i'm not sure have you heard stories of that happening where a website has misrepresented itself to lure people to uh authenticate themselves with their facebook accounts or other accounts and then used it nefariously no nothing out in the wild just in the hey watch this demonstration of the security flaw okay you know the thing that concerns me about that is if I'm a uh, a site that uses Facebook as authentic for authentication, and somebody gets exploited on some other site with their Facebook identity, I can be accused, right? Because I've right. had I could have done it too. Absolutely, and what you can do is on on your site is actually do these extra checks that Facebook has implemented, uh, where you can make sure that you don't become the facilitating victim site, so right. you can prevent yourself from being the one that receives the replay. But that's extra oh. stuff, and that's not commonly done. Hmm. And that's so, what you were talking about before when you say there is something that they can do. Yeah. But that's just an example of – so that's OAuth too, right, that that has this vulnerability uh, if you use it natively for authentication. Right. Uh, if you use it for authorization, which uh, maybe we should define those, authentication sure. is – just verifying a user's identity and nothing more. Right. Whereas authorization is receiving delegated permission to do something on some user's behalf. And you may not even know who that user is. So right. I can authorize you to go download my pictures from Flickr, for example, but you may not even know what my account is. All you have is a code that tells Flickr, go download the photos from this person's stream. So OpenID was focused on authenticating the user. Uh, so it's, it's secure against many of these attacks. Uh, but authorization was an afterthought for OpenID. And so they tacked something on. Mm. And so it, it didn't feel very smooth and it left a lot of web developers wanting more. So OAuth 2 came around and said, well, let's take the best of OAuth and the best OAuth 1, and let's take o OpenID and begin to bring these two things together. Uh, now, that turns out to be such a mammoth task that mm. OAuth 2 isn't even finished yet. Uh, and it's, OAuth, it's a new protocol that sits on top of OAuth 2 called OpenID Connect, okay. which is supposed to bring all these things together and give you one very secure, hopefully relatively simple protocol so that you can authenticate using your Facebook account, give limited permissions to the website you're logging into to say, for example, post on your Facebook stream uh, and and without many of these worries. Is this something that we have to wait for Facebook and all the other providers to uh, to get on board with or is something we could use right out of the box if we had the technology now? Well, as a user, you just have to wait. As a web developer, we can uh, develop our own websites to consume these new protocols today. They are, there are implementers' drafts out there. Uh, but if you actually wanted to accept Facebook using this new protocol, you just have to wait for Facebook to, uh, Got it. to adopt it. So they do have a part in all of this. In other yes, words, in other words they, there is a new thing that they have to implement as well. Yes. But I, I do expect that they will do so uh, as one of the earlier adopters. They were virtually the very first adopter of OAuth 2. So uh, right. and they're an active part of that group. 
Uh, you know, if you this is a really good thing, and I'll, I'll bring this point up again because it it came up in real life. If you sell bits, you know, it it's very hard to sell bits online. And what I mean by that is any kind of digital content. It's very hard to sell digital content because it's so easily copied. But with streaming, and I look at Pluralsight as a really good example of this, right? They don't sell DVDs. They don't sell things that can be downloaded and copied up to, you know, sites and all of that stuff. It, it, you, yeah, you can do it, but you would have to re-encode things and go through a, a whole bunch of, spend a whole lot of time doing it to do, to, to make copies. Um, so they really need to have a, a system in place where somebody logs in and signs on and doesn't and has a disincentive to share their credentials. And right. Because because one guy in a company could have an account and some friend of his from another company says, let me try a plural. Oh, let me just give you my account and you can go log in with me. Right. So they you want to give them the disincentive. And this is a perfect way to do it, you know, because nobody's going to share their Facebook password, but they may share their plural site password. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if you sell bits and you sell access to data that's dependent on credentials, it's a really good idea to to use, you know, Facebook or some other really popular uh, provider. Yeah. And so a lot of web developers say, well, what's in it for me? Why shouldn't I just take a password? You know, this this new federated identity thing uh, is, is just a problem. It, it's additional work for me. Uh, going along with that, if you're tying it together and somebody is logging into your website with Facebook and dozens of other websites, then some of these CAPTCHA tests that we have to do today yeah. um, to make sure that one user doesn't generate a hundred accounts to get a hundred versions of right. this free service. Uh, some of those go start to go away too, sure. because you, we've invested a lot in our Facebook accounts or wh whatever kind of uh, federated identity account we have. And so we don't, we don't want to either give that one massive account to our friend and we don't want to create a whole new one just to log into this other website. Yeah. This portion of .NET rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik who bring you Telerik reporting Every business app comes with a requirement for visualizing data. But why bury yourself in coding endless charts and grids when you can add interactive data visualizations quickly and codelessly? And what if you have to export and print these visualizations? Well, there's no need to code any of this. Try Telerik Reporting, the powerful ad hoc reporting solution for your web, desktop, and cloud apps. It's the easy way to create stylish, interactive .NET reports in a fraction of the time. It supports both relational and cube data sources, report embedding, and exporting to PDF, HTML, Excel, and Word, all in a single seamless package. Visit Telerik.com reports to download a trial copy. Telerik Reporting. It's fast, easy, and interactive. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah, I, I really like the thought that not only are we more credible by taking those kinds of authentications, but our users are more credible by giving us those credentials. Mm. Yes. Uh, still, we get into this whole battle of if everybody's using the same set of credentials, one breach represents a massive breach. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's one of the weaknesses. There, there's a couple of main weaknesses in, in OpenID or even potentially OpenID Connect, although I haven't studied that recently yet, and I know the drafts are still changing. But uh, when you have one login that unlocks everything, you, one, one is, yes, one single breach can let you into everything. Uh, the other thing is, if that one service provider decides to terminate your account, maybe they don't like what you've been doing lately, maybe, they, maybe you violated their terms of service, or they think you did, mm. or maybe Facebook.com is just down. Any of yeah. these things could mean suddenly you can't get to anything on the internet. Uh, and InfoCard, one of the reasons why I wish that that would eventually, or something like it could eventually be the, the the final prize, is because you completely control your own identity, then whatever device you're on is your authentication. And so if any other auxiliary service goes down or decides to terminate your account, that doesn't keep you from being able to access your data. We still have this issue of, is your identity yours? Right. Well, and that's that's what the crypt cryptography in uh, in InfoCard is supposed to address. Right. So just because it's encrypted doesn't mean that it's uh, that it's valid. How how does InfoCard maintain its validity? It 
is a self-describing token where, so if I create an info card on my laptop on, on my own computer, it creates what we call an asymmetric key where I have a public key and a private key and nobody has seen either one before and nobody will see my private key. But I can say, look, in fact, most websites that take your username and password, they don't verify your real identity. They don't know that I am really Andrew Arnett. They may not even ask for my full name. All they really care about, most websites that take an account, that you create an account on, all they really care about is set something up so that when you return, we'll recognize you. That's really all they want. That's really what it is. Yeah. Great description of it. So in oh, InfoCard, um, you, you produce this public key uh, which is just a, a blob of ones and zeros that nobody has seen before, but you present it to a website and it says, okay, so that's who you are. Uh, and when you go back and visit the website again, you show them the same string. It says, oh, I recognize you. Now, what prevents that from somebody else stealing your public key and replaying it? Uh, that's where the cryptography comes in, where you, without disclosing your private key, you use your private key to write a signed message that goes along with your public key hmm. that proves not only do I have the public key, but I have proven that I have access to the private key, which guarantees that I am who I say I am. You still, you still have to register yourself with the website once, and you know you may have to go through CAPTCHA or any of those other mechanisms to for them to authorize you. But once you're authorized, it's the return trips that are 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 taken care of. Yes. Yeah. And that's where that's where managed information cards might make that a little bit a little bit better. Mm. You're trading something though. You're giving up your ability to create your own information card and managing your own identity uh, by giving that to a third party service. But then, then if you present those managed information cards to a website, you can often skip a lot of that early handshaking. You don't have to verify your, that you own an email address. You don't have to verify you know, that you're a human by taking a CAPTCHA test because the managed information card has additional signatures on it where the website says, oh, I see that VeriSign has already gone through all of this vetting of you, that you're a real person. I'll just accept this immediately. And then, so logging in for the user actually becomes much easier. And that's one of the great misconceptions, in my opinion, of all of this new way of logging users into the websites. You know, especially, you know, CEOs will say, well, what's the return on investment? What's this going to do to my click-through rate, my sign-up rate, my conversion rates? Uh, you know, users are only used to usernames and passwords. But how, how, how much do they pay for a password recovery? How many accounts never come back because the user can't log in anymore? Or how many people create multiple accounts because they forgot that they had already created one? Uh, with, with these new technologies, logging into a website, even the first time, can be as easy as one or two clicks. Which is and, right. and the level of authentication or identification is much higher now. I mean, that's I think the whole strength with the Facebook thing is just the sense that that's really you, right? Uh, even whether it is or not, it's another question entirely. But it's a perception thing. Yes. Hmm. Uh, but I, I do like the idea, and I wonder if Facebook would take this on. Of you know, could you get to higher levels of authentication? You know, really proving that you're you. Global entry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and that's so that's that's what I really like about the dis this distributed model that OAuth uh, 2 or OpenID offer is it, it, we, we've been using Facebook because that seems to be the most popular identity provider right now. But suppose Facebook was a relying party, which is our term for a website that actually accepts somebody else's uh, authentication. For, for a given user. Uh, let's say you could log into Facebook saying, I want to log into Facebook using my Twitter account instead and turn everything on its head. Right. Um, well, fine. You're still logging into the password, but now you want to raise the bar and say, I want to increase the confidence in this person being really who he says he is, which is, I think, Richard, what you were asking. There are services out there that are open ID providers where you don't use a password at all. You Maybe you log into that service with InfoCard. Maybe you log in with a picture password or uh, there, and there's several very ingenuitive, creative ways of authenticating a user that is phishing resistant, which is very important. And the nice thing about delegating authentication, this goes back to, you know, what's in it for me for the web developer who is considering using passwords versus delegated authentication is simply now users can, I don't have to worry about a, a password screen and controlling my own security practices, I can let 
some user decide how important the account is to him. And if somebody wants to log in to Facebook using info card versus a password versus some kind of a one-time use token, it doesn't matter to me. I just log in, log them in with Facebook and they can control all that. On the other hand, some sites like banks uh, have a very vested interest in knowing just how confident they can be in this particular login. I want to know that this is really who the person is. I don't want some cheap Facebook account with a simple password letting the user in. Uh, so banks are very hesitant and other very high uh, asset sites are hesitant mm. to accept these types of things. And so build, built into these security protocols are ways for the website to say, look, I require two-factor authentication or I require a bio biometric device to be involved. Uh, but even then you have to there has to be trust relationships. That's on the social side. That's not on the technology side where it says, yeah, I, I see that Facebook is claiming that they use two-factor authentication, but do I trust Facebook? They could be lying. Right. Cryptography alone can't solve all of these problems. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's I, I love the idea of InfoCard. And, and I, it, man, it'd just be great if that it became an actual card or a fob or something that uh you know that everybody accepted so whenever i need instead of showing my id i can just you know beep oh yeah okay thank you mr franklin but you know i really want to get past this basic idea of authentication and uh identification and into more of my preferences that's the thing i if i have to enter my you know united mileage plus number one more time oh, i'm going to poke my eyes out yeah. <laughs> right. Like that. Well, there's a set of information I'm willing to share with you right. to save time for me. It's like, yeah, look, I'm really a frequent flyer and I really don't want to have to tell the next site again. It's bad enough. I have to create a username and password. Now I want to get the next step. I want to, here's a package of information you should know about me. Treat me accordingly. How about I sit down at a computer and create a login? You know, now I want all my stuff to show up. I mean, you know, that that's the we've done that already, but but that's, you know, that's what you're talking about. My preferences should follow me around. Right. In fact, there's a there's a a vein going through saying, "Well, Facebook shouldn't own my friends and my tweets because I might want to move from Facebook to Google Plus just for an example or, mm -hmm. or vice versa. Um, you should be able to – and this is just one line of thought, right? Um, your social network, your preferences, everything that goes with you, instead of being associated with an individual service provider, they should be associated with you personally. Right. So you can go to Facebook or you can go to Google Plus and take your friends and your tweets with you even if you're visiting both sites simultaneously, which is an interesting thought. It's, it's got some interesting technological uh, problems to solve. We'll see what happens to it. Yeah. And then, you know, thinking a little bit more of the, the physical device problem, you know, if it's on a card or on a fob or something like that, well, now there's a physical device that has your entire everything on it. I'm not so sure that's a good idea either. But, you know, that comes back to just the basic strategy of keeping – keeping codes and passwords and things like that safe. You know, how, how do you do that? <laughs> well, so how, how many, uh, how many dozens of accounts does the average web surfer have? I, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if you do, but lots. <laughs> yeah. And how many passwords, unique passwords do you think those people have? One. Yeah. About. Once in a while, you'll have somebody who has two. For a long time, I had two. I had my low security password, which I used on Twitter and all of these websites that I didn't care about and didn't trust. Uh, and I had my high security password, which I used on all my bank accounts. Right. Uh, figuring, well, the low ones might reuse my password and might leak my password, and it'll, I'll only be compromised at the low end. Um, because those were two passwords, I could manage two passwords. Um, but real, we've had so many cases of even high-level banks losing people's identity and you know leaking passwords that's not even a secure idea and we can't expect users to come up with 25 or 100 unique passwords and remember them all uh, the other problem is the the fishability of these passwords and yeah. the the guessability of these passwords people if they if they name their call their password their dog's name that's that's going to be a dictionary attack we have mm -hmm. that linkedin for example was recently vulnerable to that everybody with a weak password on linkedin got hacked yeah. Uh, or, or at least could have been. Um, so again, in this pragmatic approach of until we get to this 
panacea of an info card world or something like that. Um, OpenID and OAuth are steps toward that. And an even more practical step, and this is what an individual user can do today, um, which is what makes it so interesting, is a just get a password manager. Yeah. Uh, there's several free password managers and some for a very low cost. They'll generate strong uh, uh, unique passwords for every website you visit, which not only keeps one website's uh, vulnerability from infecting the rest of your accounts, but uh, perhaps more importantly, it makes you, it helps solve the identity theft problem because if people say, hey, I'm Facebook, give me your Facebook username and password because you had mistyped it and said Facebook or right. something on the URL, sure. your password manager isn't going to put the password in. Right. And you won't put the password in because you, you don't know your to. own password. And that's a yeah. beautiful place. Yeah. Although generally speaking, I'm incredibly frustrated with the the password rules we're trying to use these days because they're stupid. Yes, they are. I mean, the, the proper good, you know, pulling up my cryptography pad, good entropic passwords are long, not uppercase, lowercase, punctuation. Well, and random too. Well, it, it, even the randomness doesn't really matter. You if you take four decent sized words separated by spaces that you can naturally remember. That's a way better password than eight characters of random crap. It's true. Hmm. There's a good XKCD comic on that. I don't know. Class, if you can yeah. I, I will <laughs> add that to the show notes, the XKCD comic, because it's awesome. And it's exactly true. And it, the funny part is, you know, gooing random characters plays into the computer's hands. Sure. Doing four or five long words or a past sentence. Or a sentence, yeah. Is playing into the human's hands. It's something we remember easily that computers will are have a terrible time with. But you try entering or having a 40 or 50 character password. Most, Most systems will allow it. Yep. Well, uh, there's lots more to talk about, but you know what time it is, Richard? Wow, it must be that happy time. Time to give away some stuff. Oh, cool. What do you got? Well, if you don't know what we're talking about, this is the .NET Rocks fan club giveaway. We're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection worth $2,000 right now. Lori McKinney is our winner today. Ah, congratulations, Lori. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Lori. And uh, the, all you got to do is go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, which is in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, you too could win something. Every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of hot technology handpicked by myself and Richard the Toy Boy. And whatever we think it is keeps changing. Yes, it does. As the year goes on and newer and coolers could be a surface. Could be a surface. The could, new surface. It could be an old surface too. <laughs> no, it might be old surface, but which is now called Pixel Sense. Could be a Pixel Sense. But I also, you know, what about one of those cool new maybe a Surface Pro and a Surface Arm? Maybe, maybe some kind of robotic thing, or maybe, uh, maybe a sixty-four core machine. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to know because it keeps changing. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, you know, I'm kind of, kind of smitten with that idea of a suite of new Microsoft gadgets. Maybe a Phone Eight and the Surface Pro, and yeah. you know, rigging somebody out. But that's today's thought. I don't know what our thoughts will be by December <laughs> or even tomorrow. So if you want to get in on the action, go to the .NET Rocks website and click on the big Get Free Stuff link on the right side. Fill in the forms, and you're part of the pool. So, yeah, okay, now I'm sufficiently depressed again, as I always am when we talk about security. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, identity theft just remains a huge problem, and we're we're trying to come up with ways to to fix the problem and we were talking about password managers and stuff and you know man I'm now I'm thinking some device might be good that has a biometric fingerprint reader on it that has uh uh that has so so it can only be operated by you and uh so that but it also has all your stuff on it and RFID and you know it, it, that's the sort of future I really hope we're moving toward something that excuse me Something that is locally authentic by you biologically, so only you can use it, but it also contains all your passwords and preferences and stuff that you want to share, and you just hold it up to whatever you want to share it with, and, and things happen. Yeah, and hopefully it doesn't. it's not all necessarily locally on that device, but that device maybe has all the keys that would unlock it in the cloud. That way, if you lose your device, you haven't lost your whole soul. Well, sure. Yeah, sure. That's That's... That's a great idea, and I, God, I hope we move to that. 
I think I, I think we're we're trying. The, the, I think one of the problems we have though is is businesses, especially, are extremely pragmatic. They that whole "what's in it for me" problem, yeah. uh, and we have this bootstrapping problem. If let's say I invented that device or, or somebody did, uh, who, nobody accepts that device for payment right. or for identity authentication. How? Do, so why would you buy one? And if you don't buy one, then why would anybody accept them? Uh, businesses look at that, and so we never solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is my motivation behind .NET OpenAuth and some of the other work that I've been doing uh, is look maybe that maybe individual users are willing to spend more time investing in this idea until businesses see oh you've got a complete solution here I haven't invested yeah. in it but now that you've got it I'll take it well and I guess seeing how this is a .NET OpenAuth show we should start talking about .NET OpenAuth yeah how do I implement <laughs> this sucker so what is this. So .NET OpenAuth is a uh, an implementation of InfoCard as a relying party, uh, mm-hmm. OpenID as a relying party and a provider, and OAuth 1 and 2 in all of their respective roles for the .NET platform. Yeah, uh, sounds impl- good. Yeah. It, uh, it's free, it's open source, uh, and it's it's been evolving for several years now. It's the accepted de facto standard for OpenID, at least, uh, in, in the .NET community. So mm-hmm. it's it's got some pretty good coverage. So tell me this makes it easy, because uh, as Jeff Fritz mentioned on Twitter, OAuth tends to be very messy to set up. It It is. Um, it depends on which part of the library and what you're trying, what the scenarios you're trying to accomplish. If all you want to do is accept logins from Google or Yahoo, yep which are both open ID providers. Mm-hmm. It's very easy. It literally can be as easy as dragging a button from your toolbox in Visual Studio onto your web form. Now if you're wow. using MVC, you know, we don't have these nice ASP.NET drop-in controls anymore, so you have a little bit of scaffolding, right? A little bit of code. But we have samples and we even have NuGet packages that do some of this stuff for you. Mm-hmm. It's relatively easy. The that it gets harder when you want to interact with Facebook or Twitter because these services use OAuth for mm-hmm. authentication, which is that paradox we talked about earlier. Um, and OAuth uh, requires that the consumer, which is your website that you're writing, know all the intricate, uh, unique details about every service that you want to log in with. And so that now you have to start writing specialized code. But .NET OpenAuth recently has uh, acquired some code from Microsoft, actually, uh, which is also open source, that makes even that part as easy as writing one or two lines of code. Nice. So add in the library, get it from, you get it via NuGet, I presume? Yeah, you can download it as well, but NuGet is the preferred mechanism. NuGet's always the preferred mechanism. Especially for a security library, because you want to make sure that that's up to date with the latest patches if any security exploits come out. Do I have to have a HTTPS connection? Uh, As a website that that takes these things? Mm -hmm. It's a good idea, but especially if you're just a relying party, it is not required. So when I get all the communication that goes between me and Facebook, for example, Facebook has the uh, SSL, so it's still encrypted. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's encrypted, and uh, the SSL also authenticates that you are actually talking to Facebook, which is really important, because if I can fool your computer into talking to my computer thinking I am Facebook, then I can log in as anybody. So it's always good to use it, but not necessary. In this case, well, so it's it's always important for Facebook or some service provider to use it. Oh, I'm talking about uh, you. You 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 have a website like .NET Rocks, and you want to implement this. You don't necessarily have to have an SSL certificate, but it's a good idea. I think that's right. what you said. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah. don't have SSL, then anybody can sniff your HTTP session cookie anyway and impersonate right. you. So you better not be doing anything very confidential if you're not using SSL anyway. Yep. Surfing the web. Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers.
these days SSL is just not that big a deal. I'm I'm finding most web servers the the CPUs are sitting around smoking cigarettes and playing poker anyway. <laughs> so right, you know, and, hey, and why don't you go encrypt everything? <laughs> yeah, and the certificates aren't a hundred dollars a pop anymore. You, no. you can get free SSL certs that are accepted by almost every browser. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole other, we've done shows on the run as radio side about how we've had problems with good quality SSL providers, and there's been whole reams of SSL certs that have been banned because of it. But, uh, you know, it is in your interest if you're actually going to, the average consumer doesn't think about this, but I got to think there's some folks out there that are focused on, are you using a good quality SSL cert at the server side? That's true. Yeah, my grandma wouldn't be thinking about that, but she no. would be impacted by it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, therein lies the, the problem, right? It, the regular mortal gets in blindsided by the fact that you, you logged on to a site that used a crappy cert. Yep. And who knows what happens from there. Uh, maybe we now that we've talked about it this long without actually explaining it, do you want to explain the issue? With, with the SSL certs? Yeah. Uh, well, so the, the most popular one that I've heard of is that, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago, they discovered that a bunch of Linux servers that were being used to mint these certs were using a ridiculously poor seed for their public keys that they would generate. Right. Uh, it was based on, instead of a, a truly random number, it was based on the process ID, which was always between zero and 4,000. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you could regenerate any cert you wanted to just by guessing one of those 4,000 numbers. Yeah, and it did take very long to write a little script to hammer your way through that. Uh, and, and what I like about that particular scenario was it meant that this was, you know, don't attribute to malice that which could be plain by stupidity. Mm. This was a stupid thing that happened. Mm. And all these people who had paid some money for these certs, not realizing these certs were essentially garbage. And they were tagged in a way that any good hacker could quickly find out where the cert came from and know, oh, you're one in this span here. This cert's easy to crack. Right. So I'll, uh, I'll add a link to the Run As episode we did around this particular issue for folks who really want to hear more about it. It's, it's more IT-centric, but it does talk about the fact that the democratization of handing out certs, that it wasn't all network solutions to get your cert, your certs anymore, mm-hmm. has consequences, that there are companies that are of lower quality producing these certs, and you've got to yeah, deal with that. It's also worth pointing out, I think, that I mean, the Linux community often likes to rave, well, we're more secure because we're open source. We have thousands of eyes looking at our security code all the time. Mm. Yeah. Well, how long did that go out unchecked in Linux? Yeah. Uh, and we haven't heard of any similar thing from Microsoft as far as I know it, although <laughs> the Windows Update thing was pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's nasty. Let's tell that story. Uh, who's most familiar with it? I, I, Microsoft had some vulnerability where they could, uh, th- third-party code could end up getting themselves signed by Windows Update servers and then end up being distributed to servers, uh, end-users' computers thinking that it's Microsoft code and it wasn't. Anything, you have any more detail? No, that's the basic story that I heard as well, that it's you were able to basically insert code that would be recognized as coming from Microsoft, same quality or certified by Microsoft. So, you know, folks that run serious IT infrastructures at UWS, US, basically set these levels of here's stuff I'll just install if it comes in and here's stuff I'll, I have to inspect first, go through testing and so forth. And so you were able to flag it as the stuff that just get installed. Yikes. But I don't know that it, I mean, it was a bad exploit, but I don't think it was actually, nothing really happened with it. It got found before it really uh, got exploited. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's one, we don't think about this much, but Microsoft actually has, since 2004, since XPSB2 and the Great Security Revolution, been really open, really functional, and really focused on when we have a, bre- a breach or an exploit, we identify it, we talk about it, we're public about it, we get on it, we get it fixed, and we distribute it. Mm. Like, there's yep. no hiding, there's no denial, there's none of that. And certain other companies uh, can remain nameless for now. Uh, haven't necessarily got that same DNA because they and it, and there's for the simplest reason of all they still believe they're invulnerable and they're wrong. It's true, 
In fact, .NET OpenAuth, this was an interesting question for .NET OpenAuth was, supposing, I mean, it is a security library and it's absolutely conceivable that it's got security holes. Suppose somebody's using version 3.4.3 and a year later it's identified, oh my gosh, this has this enormous hole and anybody yeah. can log in as anybody. Um, should .NET OpenAuth have some kind of a feature where I, as one of the developers of that library, can actually disable your site if it's using that version in order hmm. to protect your users uh, until that site upgrades. And that yes. was an interesting question to deliberate. In the end, uh, I decided absolutely not. Yeah, you can't <laughs> shut down other people's sites. That's way right. too big, brother. I mean, even, even if that we, even with the best of intentions. Right. So I don't want to get sued by, oh my gosh, my million dollar business was shut down and I wasn't even attacked. It was just the, this, this library that I was using. Yeah. Uh, but what I did do is uh, the, the, the library, you can turn this off, but by default, the library does call home occasionally and mm -hmm. it says, here's my version number. Do you have anything you want to say? Yeah. And I've got a server that will call back and say, yeah, you're vulnerable. <laughs> just so you know. And then that then the library on that local website will actually log something that the web developer may notice if if they've hooked up logging. It says, "Oh, the web <laughs> the owner of this library says I should upgrade." Uh, yeah, but it is totally on their side to notice that and to act on it. Yeah, and and so now you'll have that classic scenario of after they're breached and all of this goes down and they go back and read the logs, they'll see that yeah. the system's been telling them for months. <laughs> You're vulnerable. Yeah. Although so far, ever since installing that, which was a couple of years ago, I haven't had any reason to use it. Oh, that's good. So let's say you're a developer and you implement .NET OpenAuth and you're getting into OAuth 2 and you're one of these brilliant guys who can figure all this stuff out and understand it. And you see a way that it can be improved. Um, if you Are there communities or ways that you can get involved and bring your suggestions to to the table in a, in a way where people will actually listen to you and... and uh, and, and take your suggestions? Yeah. Um, I, I've been in the community for a while, but it's it's a great community. They're very tolerant uh, and interested in not only understanding your point, but whether or not they agree with your point, they'll have an open discussion. There's there's mailing lists with the OpenID guys who are behind writing that spec who are still very involved. Same with the OAuth spec. Uh, and I've I've both contributed ideas that they've responded to, and I've seen other people who really didn't know hardly anything about the spec, and they were also uh, responded to very respectfully. So it's it's really a great community of, of folks. Uh, they also have actually live conferences called IIW uh, that you can attend and meet these folks, and you can see just how passionate they are. A lot of them, a lot of them are from businesses that are interested in this, and so they're paying employees to go attend this conference. But you also have people who, uh, like myself, just do this on our spare time and uh we we collaborate we develop up more ideas for the next spec or, or discuss security exploits it's, so it's a great place we've talked about a lot of different technologies and things but let's say oauth 2 which is is still in the works and there's still plenty of time to contribute where where on the web can we go to uh get into that community uh if you go to oauth.net uh not to be confused with the .NET platform, uh, but that's the URL. You can go and uh, find out. There's a community link where you can go and see the the mailing lists. And it, it is an IETF uh, where they're developing that spec now. And it the OAuth 2 spec itself is actually in in final call right now. So it's OAuth 2 hopefully will not change much. In Internet the Engineering Task Force IETF org. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, they've okay. been they've been playing with OAuth two for years, uh, and they just need to solidify it so that Facebook and everybody else can hop onto the final spec, and we can move on. It's been uh, it's been a hassle keeping .NET OpenAuth and every other OAuth two library, I'm sure, for the other folks who are maintaining theirs uh, up to spec with the latest drafts, and that of course breaks back you know interoperability. That's been an issue too when different people are implementing different drafts. Because yeah, haven't people been implementing the the two O drafts anyway? Yes. Yes, they have been for years. Uh, and yeah, the, the fact that it's been years is frightening all by itself. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it started out as, I think they used to call it simple auth. And it was extremely simple. But then when they, they opened it up to the rest of the community saying, hey, let's turn this into a standard. Years later, it's now 15 times larger and more complex. And almost everybody's happy with it. <laughs> Except, yeah. you know, for those who wanted it to be simple. Right. Not so simple auth. 
<laughs> nope. Used to be simple off <laughs> yeah. back in the day. Um, so if you're a web developer, maybe you're using .NET OpenAuth, maybe you're not, but uh, just ensuring user privacy, are there things that we can be thinking about and some simple things that we can do to help ensure uh, that people are protected? You know, there, there's a couple of things. One is just <clears throat> when you use, whether it's this library or uh, just the protocols through some other library, when you have an opportunity to accept a Facebook login, for example, uh, you have a chance to tell Facebook during that exchange, these are the things that I want as part of this login. And the bare minimum, t if you're logging with Facebook, is the user's identity. Some value that is that, hey, I recognize you because you were here before. Mm. Uh, but uh, very often you'll see, and this web, this Facebook application also wants to post to your feed and see your friends and see who their friends are mm -hmm. and um, all of this very invasive stuff. Uh, and maybe that's because the web developer was lazy and he said, just give me everything. Um, but maybe that's because the website, for some reason that he hasn't disclosed to the user, wants to be able to do that. Now, some uh, nefarious sites do that so that they can spam your friends deliberately. Right. Right. Um, it bugs the heck out of me. So a couple things you can do. The, the one, the altruistic one is just make sure that your scope is set as minimal as possible uh, so that users aren't granting, uh, giving away their privacy rights to you unnecessarily. Uh, the other, the other perhaps more important thing is we're, tr we need to train users to be less willing to give up their privacy. And right now, users are, well, I want to use this app, so I'm going to give them whatever they ask for in order to get to sure. it. Sure. Uh, we need to train them so that, wait, this app is asking for more than most apps ask for. Why is this? Why and is they need that? to challenge those apps so that those apps will step back and say, oh, yeah, I guess we shouldn't be asking for that kind of information. Yeah. Well, I think we got to get in. I just ran into this recently with uh, Branch Out on Facebook. I, you know, it was one of those things. Everybody sort of jumped on board, so I signed up an account. Never went back to it. Yeah, I'm not there. And then, and then, sometime recently, I tried to go back to branch out, and they want additional rights. So the app's running. I'm a member, and uh, people are communicating with me on it, but I can't get into it without accepting these additional rights they want, and I keep declining those rights, and it won't let me into the app. Yeah, that's that's very frustrating. Yeah, what are those funny. additional rights, Richard? Uh, they, I think they want location and I don't know something else. It's just it's just unnecessary. You know, well, it's like I'm sorry, you, you took it away. You've decided you want more rights, and I don't get to play if you don't have get the right. I don't give you the rights. Mm. So yeah, it's a it's a funny thing, and it's and you start wondering, and you know, why would why do you want these things? I mean, I'm clearly in the minority that I actually ask that question, but I also think as a developer, we start thinking in terms of can I make my app still function if I don't get those rights? Just give you an inferior experience right. so that you start wanting to give me the rights. That's the, the real problem here. You see this in phone yeah. apps and these Facebook apps and so forth. You have no idea. Before you can do anything, you've got to agree to this list of stuff. And I like the fact that we're now enumerating. Yeah. Right? I, I want to know the length of your colon. <laughs> I, 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 I need to know where you live. I need your bank account numbers. Right. Like the fact that we have that list, so you can look at it and go, yeah, you know, you're not getting that. Sorry, but you're right. It should be. They should just restrict your features, not not uh, not your experience. There's an interesting tension between the user experience uh, that we're still trying to find the balance of uh, in that regard, because maybe the website does have a legitimate need to post to your Facebook feed, for example. Yeah. Um, but the user at that point doesn't know why. Yeah, and so the the ideal scenario, from my point of view, is you if you click log in with Facebook, the only thing you're granting to that app is to know who you are. Yeah, and, and, uh, at a very simple level of here's this unique identifier that nobody understands, but it's who I'll be next time. And then as I'm going through this web application, I say, hey, I want to use this feature, and then the feature says, well, in order to use this, I need to be able to pay, post to your Facebook page. So click here to authorize me to do that. Yeah. And so it's a it's an incremental experience where the user always knows why they're giving up these rights. Mm -hmm. And it's um, for a feature they want. But and I think more even more saliently. And when you say no, the feature goes away, not the whole right. app. Well, exactly. that's the way it works on most iPhone apps. You know that most people are familiar with on phone apps. 
you know, such and such an app wants to use your location. You can say no. You can still use the app. Yeah. You just don't get the location service. Right. Yeah. And the tension comes from the web the web owners say, well, I'm concerned about my click-through rates, though. If I pop up yet, if I send him back to Facebook multiple times, he's more likely to fall off. Or, um, you know, they, they just decide, I, I want to get, get it all up front. And they may say, uh, well, if the user says no and I allow that, now I have to test my app and code it up to support a subset of the, of the permissions that I was expecting to have gotten. Yep. Uh, and that adds more tax to them and so they don't want to do this. So that there's that tension between user privacy and and rights and the simplicity experience that both the web developers and supposedly the users want. Well, Andrew, it's been a, a great hour here talking to you about this stuff and uh I'm always interested in what the next thing is and uh certainly .net open auth sounds like something that we should be doing uh here on .net rocks. And it's the in the box. Yeah. Comes with Studio 2012. Woohoo. Woo-hoo. Right. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. I think it's already in the uh, the beta or the release candidate. Awesome. Thanks again, Andrew. Hey, thank you. Have a good one. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter vans by the FCC.